know, so just, but yeah, I got, I got the gist of how they work, like, um, I'm thinking about maybe not doing an intro for this. Um, we're gonna switch it up a little bit. So we just got um, somebody who made us like original, like originally produced uh, like, intros and outros. So I'm trying to see what that sounds like. And then I was gonna mention Chelsea because I saw on your Instagram that you yeah. had a picture with DDA Drogba. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's oh. like Drogba's like one of my top three favorite players of all time. Same, same. Yeah. Him when Lampard and uh, Drogba and Anelka all played Maluda. Yeah. When they were all on the squad, man, that was the dream team, and that's when I was like really embedded in soccer. Soccer was like my first dream as a kid. Like, you're gonna play professional soccer. <laughs> soccer is what like made me grow out my long hair because of Ronaldinho. He's also my favorite. Too. Okay. And I would, I would wear his cleats, like his whole like uh, swagger on the pitch. I just, <laughs> that's exactly what I wanted to be. So no, so- soccer is 100% there. And the Didier Drogba thing, that was a huge moment for me. So um, well, he, he had to connect. His uh, cousin is uh, Bill Hamid, who is the DC United oh, keeper. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's his cousin. So he got his tickets to the DC United game, and we were able to go down to where the lockers were. So we had already decided that, like, okay, since um, Drogba plays for, um, what is it, Montreal? Yeah. We were going to be like, all right, let me make him something and try to get it to him. That's so, what's up. So we did it. We had a hard time. It's funny. There's, like, a whole Snapchat story of the whole thing. They didn't want to let us in with the paintings. We finally got it in. We put it to the side. We go down to the locker rooms. The same game, Drogba gets a red card. So he gets kicked <laughs> off early. And we're like, oh, shit. What, what's going to happen now? So then we go downstairs to where they're getting on the buses. We see everyone passing us. And then we're like, yo, is, is Drogba is still in the locker room? Uh-huh. And they're like, no, he's already on the bus. He's been on the bus. He got kicked off early. And we're like, oh, shit. So I'm walking with one of the guys up. And security is giving us a hard time the whole time. Like, they hate us because uh-huh. we're just loitering pretty much. Yeah. And they're like, and I'm walking with him. And I'm like, can you give this to him? He's like, yeah, just come up, come walk up with me. And then we're walking up. Security gets in my face immediately. And then the, the dude keeps walking, the other soccer player. And I'm like, hey, just take it with you. And he got on the bus. And he took it. And I walked back like, all right, well, at least he got it. Like, yeah. It's something. And That's then awesome. their manager runs back down to me. He's like, who did it? And I was like, I did. And then he's like, come on. So he takes me up on the bus. Like, he was so cool. And it's, it's a shame because the RFK is security. They, like, I clearly meant no harm. I had mm-hmm. something to give him, and that's all I wanted to do. Yeah. But they were giving me such a hard time. And the manager for the other team came and grabbed me and took me on the bus, let me meet him, got my picture and everything. He was tight about it. And then I come off, and I'm telling the security guards, like, I'm sorry I meant no harm. Like, that's all I wanted. Like, I'm done. You see? And he, he just kept staring me down so angry. <laughs> it was like, dang, you can't win. Like, they don't want you to succeed. But it was a good moment. That that's was, awesome, like, though. Like, they, called, they literally called you back. Yeah, they so called you me back. With that. That's dope. And it's, I mean, I hate fan art, too. Fan art, I said, is going to be the death of me. But it was just one of those things that you have to do, like, I got to meet Drogba, yeah. like, so it's cool. That's what's up. 
Yeah, I mean, I also saw you have a picture with, I think, more than one with Kid Cudi. With Kid Cudi, yeah. Speaking of fan art. (laughs) Yeah, no, Kid Cudi, uh, we could get into that, too, because Kid Cudi isn't even fan art, because I don't even, I don't have to change anything or personalize it for him at all. I just, I make things, and they, I could, they all belong to him. I could give it all to him, because it just fits so well. But I met Kid Cudi, um, I've only met him once, but I met him on his tour for Speeding Bullet to Heaven at Echo Stage. We got um, VIP tickets, meet and greets. So I had took a painting and a sculpture to him. And yeah, so we got it backstage. That was also a bitch. Like, I sw- it, can I cuss? Is yeah, yeah absolutely. All right. <laughs> that was all, like, here's the thing. There's so much problems with doing this kind of stuff because security does not want to let you in with anything. Right. And I had a relatively large painting, so they were not having that at all. But we managed to finesse it in. Thank God I have a great team because they're yeah. always they're always helping me out. Um, we managed to finesse it in, and we're first in line. We meet him. It's all good. Like he's, I don't know. It's kind of surreal. It was it was a normal conversation. He he's loving it. He tells me, "Did you sign it? Make sure you sign it." So I'm signing my work for him. Like who would have thought that yeah. would happen? And then a few months later, we he gets into contact on Gabby's Twitter because we're we're tweeting him because mm. we're trying to give him something else. And then he DMs her, and he's like, "Hey, uh, he's just saying I I have your stuff. It's in my living room." And then he sends oh, us wow. a picture of the little sculpture I gave him. Yo. So at that point, I'm just like, <laughs> I'm being a fangirl. I'm like, oh. ah. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's like in in some in some ways that's like my ultimate success, right? Well, that's yeah. that's what I would have said a few months ago. Was like, if Kid Cudi knows who I am because of my art and like he recognizes that, that is all the recognition I need. Yeah. And so for him to do that was awesome. And then the second time we came into contact with him, we went to L.A. for Complex Con, another mission. Like we're we're making all these trips with a mission at hand. So I took a sculpture and my carry on, sculptures like about this big, like two feet, maybe two feet by one foot. Uh-huh. Put in my um, bag and then we get in the complex con. And the place is so legit, within like two minutes of walking in, we see uh, Takashi Murakami. Within oh, like, I'm telling you, two minutes of walking in, he's just walking past like whatever. <laughs> and then within like five minutes, we see Pharrell just walking, he's just <laughs> walking. And then there's this huge uh, group around him, but everyone like respects him not to rush him. He's having yeah. a con- like a one-on-one with a girl and his mom, mm. and then everyone's just looking in awe. And it's not like they're bum rushing him; yeah. he's just walking normally, and a huge crowd is following him, but they stay their distance. So it was, it was That's like what's up. it was weird. I like that you mentioned you have a really good team. Tell me about that. All right, so a lot of a lot of how it works is, um, I mean, I couldn't do anything without my friends. Like there's. It's that that holds all the significance is sharing those moments with those people because if not for that it wouldn't exist. Um, Gabby plays a huge role in getting like for instance the Echo Stage thing. She ran back to the car. She brought the painting. She finessed it in, and I'm just pretty much holding our spot, talking to the guy on the walkie-talkie that's like let them in. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have done that by myself. And same with the uh, Didier Drogba situation. That was Wahid's connect. Yeah. He got us where we needed to be. Yeah. And it's just like all these moments, like I have to give it to them too. Because yeah. it's, it's just like a group effort. It's never like by myself. So now that you know, you're not in school anymore and you know, you're into young adulthood and, and whatnot, exactly. like all of us are kind of in this phase of like getting our feet wet and mm-hmm. stuff. Like when you meet people, you know, you're talking to people for the first time. Um, 
obviously the very first question I'm sure you get in anywhere in DC is so what do you do? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So so how do you explain what you do and what's the what's the typical reaction that you get? Yeah, it's kind of that's a, always a weird conversation, and it also depends on like who you're talking to because when. Like, my answer is I'm an artist first before, like, what my profession is, because that's what I do. Not that I'm making any money off of it, but I'm an artist. And in some conversations, it's like, oh, okay, that's, like, they'll, they'll get interested, but you can tell it's like, it's like, okay, so what do you really do? Mm-hmm. There's that case. But then I'm, I'm constantly in a situation where I'm surrounded by other artists, so it's not really, like something that's new like ask 10 people around me what they are and they'll tell you they're artists also (laughs) so it's really a different dynamic I guess in in public in the public eye being an artist really isn't a good look Mm -hmm. I mean what do you think I'm probably the wrong person to ask because if I met somebody like some random person on the street and they told me yeah I'm an artist I would be like all right let me find you online like I'm trying to see (laughs) what your work is like because I think that like the substance of a person's work matters so much more to Mm -hmm. me than anything else like if you tell me that you're a poet great like I want to hear your poetry like Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested in that like I'm I'm interested in the actual content like the actual substance as I think you're kind of picking up about yeah definitely (laughs) yeah and and that also brings up something else like okay so a lot of the times the, the people that I find myself interacting with like like I said there's 10 other artists like you're an artist like say a, a gallery owner right mm. if I go up there and say that I'm an artist okay they're seeing fuck, fucking artists every day they don't yeah. and I don't think they really care to you know discover new artists yeah. that much because they have their own agenda yeah. they've done their discovering for the year they have their shows to get ready for so right, right. and then it's like the people like say I go to my dad's shop right and then they're like oh he's an artist I feel like that's kind of I kind of let my dad down in some ways by saying that, you know? Is that, like, one of those things where you're, like, I don't know, like, typical masculine dad, like, you're not working with your hands type of thing, or...? Well, he can't say that, because I do plenty of work with my hands, right. but yeah. I think it's, it's more so just, like, this idea that that's not uh, going to get you anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not it's not profitable, mm-hmm. which is ridiculous. There's an art market, but... Absolutely. I guess, it, yeah, it's one of those things you just have to prove them wrong, and you have to build... And I still need to learn the art market also. What do you mean by that? Like, I need to learn how to start making money off my work, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you go about doing that? <laughs> For one, branding. I've made a conscious effort to start branding myself uh-huh. more. I feel like a lot of the times, a, a simple cosign or just anything like that can get you some buys. Right. And once you, get, once you get one buyer, one collector, then that establishes... A price range and then you go go from there right mm-hmm. right but it all matters like whose collection you're in and things like this mm-hmm. and a lot of just building a name that's what art is right mm-hmm. building a name are there local artists around you or around dc that like you really admire for their their ability to like create their brand or like have a young upstart like art career uh yeah there are a few like and there and there's for different reasons also like mm-hmm. um I think there's a guy from uh, that was at Complex Con. His name is Natural. He does this like graphic work, and he's branded so well. Like he's had his own booth at Complex Con, and yeah. those are things that like, you know, I strive to do. And then there's like some of my classmates, like Johab Silva, who was in my class. Um, he just had a solo show at Transformer. He had a sculpture that was published in the Sculpture Magazine that was also at a group show in Transformer. Mm-hmm. 
And that's just, that's, but that's another range of success and work ethic, just seeing him get in the studio every day and staying, getting there early, staying there late, being so passionate about his work. He's just, he was just a workhorse. He is a workhorse. Yeah. And that kind of, like, he's my best friend in the studio because that kind of drove me, like, like he's doing it, so I want to do it too. Yeah. That kind of brings up an interesting point because when I think about, like, somebody making music, I always think about, you know, like, competition. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you know, you can look at something like hip-hop right like rappers or something like that everybody's competing to be like like i'm the best mc yeah, i'm yeah, the best yeah, rapper yeah. i'm the best this you know so is it kind of like that for you in art too i mean i definitely say there's but i would i would say that's where the ego gets involved like i try to shut that off like one of the things i always say is leave the ego in the studio you know mm -hmm. when i'm in the studio i could feel myself i could think i'm the best but when i when i leave the studio i like to take the crown off and just be a normal human being because at the end of the day you know, if, if you're sitting across from me, we're breathing the same air, we're in the same position, there's, there's no one's better than the next. Right. I, don't, I don't care, like, what you're published in or what shows you have, you know? Right. So you feel like, outside the studio, in that sense, it is about the content. It is about the Yes, substance. definitely. And, yeah, that and more so just how you treat me, like, as a person, not like art from art, not artist to artist, but like human being to human being, what kind of conversations we're having. Yeah. yeah. Like a lot of the times you'll uh, talk to people who just can't stop talking about themselves. Like that says a lot about them, you know? Mm -hmm. And then other times you have people that'll ask you how you're doing and come on and want to look at your work. Yeah. And I don't know, I think that goes a longer way than building tension or whatever. Yeah. So does that still give you some type of motivation when like other artists are really interested in your work? Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I mean, there is a competitive nature when you see someone doing something, it makes right. you want to do more. But I mean, I think that's in, in any sense. And I don't even look at just artists that way. I don't look mm -hmm. at anybody that way. Like, yeah, anybody. Yeah. You don't have to be an artist. You could be doing, you could be in whatever field you want. And yeah. if you're like really prospering, like, I'll be like, oh, wow, like, I need to get on my shit. <laughs> yeah. So having gone to Corcoran, which is now, I guess, kind of like an entity of George Washington, right? Mm -hmm. Completely I... absorbed by George Washington, I'd okay. say. So it was just a completely separate entity before that? It was a complete separate entity. Corcoran was its own thing, and that's what I enrolled to. Mm -hmm. And that's what I loved about going there, because it was great. The experience was great. It was small. My professors were excellent. It was very specialized. Like the the courses we had, yeah, were so unique. Like one one of my favorite courses was mold making with Lisa Dillon. Like that. Shout out Lisa Dillon. Yeah, shout out Lisa <laughs> Dillon. Maybe she'll watch this <laughs> or listen to this. But it was just one of those classes. Like I I wouldn't have even known that thing existed, and that allowed me to give that little sculpture that I gave yeah. Kid Cudi. Yeah. It was that was made in Lisa Dillon's mold making nice. class. And when GW came into the picture, they X'd out all those, like, specialized classes. Mm. They got rid of half of our staff. Oh, Great wow. professors. I'm talking, like, excellent. I'd, I'd owe them everything also. So it wasn't, a good, it wasn't a good transition. But I kind of just stood back and observed. I didn't really have a voice about it. Because mm. what happens, happens. Yeah. So... Since you did go to, you know, art school and you do have, like, a formal degree in, you know, art education, um, can I call you formally trained? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. I would say I'm formally trained. I feel, 
I feel completely different than I did before this. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm definitely formal. In what ways? Um, just in making in general, like the things that I'm making now, I would have never fathomed four years ago. I'm on like, even like, so I started with religious iconography, right? Because that was the only way I knew to talk about the things I wanted to talk about. And then you, and then I took these uh, philosophy classes, right? I've taken sculpture classes, mm -hmm. taken ceramic classes, and all these things that completely altered my way of thinking. And there is no religious iconography in my work at all anymore. Uh -huh. And these are just things that um, my training has offered me, I'd say. Did it give you any type of insight into how to create a future out of you know this career path? That is one thing that I would say, the biggest thing that was lacking in like, art school is the the real life like yeah. putting it to work in reality you know you learn all these techniques you learn all these traits which are great and hopefully they get you somewhere but at the end of the day don't they don't really teach you how to be an entrepreneur really and that's yeah. what we are essentially you right. have to take your craft and learn what to do with it so that was lacking we had one class called professional practices which I took probably my junior year and I would argue that you need to take that your freshman year because that teaches you how to be, how to do art and work. One of the books that we based it on was actually literally called Art and Work. And I've talked to um, people who work at galleries and they say they, they run their gallery off the same book. Mm -hmm. That book teaches you how to um, build your website, mm -hmm. how to create your CV, yeah. all these things that are essential to being a professional artist. But that was really the only class. So, and I'll have these com conversations also with some of my other professors, like uh, Justin Placas. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Sorry, Justin. Shout out, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we'll talk about these things. Like, okay, so what do you do now? And you have to uh, apply for grants and find all these real life things that mm -hmm. they really don't train. They really don't prepare you for. Mm -hmm. They kind of like just throw you out there and say, all right, figure it out. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like it's one of those deals where it's like in high school they don't teach us how to like balance a checkbook or like yeah, do, do exactly. taxes or anything, right? Yeah, like yeah. they have some better stuff they should be teaching yeah. us. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. That also like stems into this conversation of whether a, a master's degree is necessary. I feel like in in the art world, a lot of like it is based off of having a master's degree and, and mm -hmm. you know getting getting uh, the highest rank you can, but like. I don't want to build any more loans. Yeah. Like, why would I do that? And it's, I'm not making money off of it to begin with. How am I going to go get my master's and get more loans? It makes no sense to me. Yeah. Um, but that's what YouTube is for, right? Like, I've learned so much. Um, I've learned so much off of YouTube. Mm -hmm. A lot of the classes that I've I've taken, or a lot of the things I'm doing right now, is just YouTube. Yeah. I, I YouTube and figured out. Like, I'm working off of uh, CNCs now. I'm doing 3D scanning, and a lot of that has been learned through YouTube. Yeah. And that's where my whole practice is right now. Hmm. That's what's up. YouTube is YouTube. the new MFA. <laughs> As somebody who is kind of ignorant in terms of like actual details of art and, you know, outside of just like actually going to a gallery and mm -hmm. just, you know, observing, looking at your work specifically, you know, you mentioned that you started off with like religious iconography and stuff. Mm -hmm. I don't see any of that in your work anymore, which is something that you mentioned. When I look at your work now, I think my attention is kind of geared more towards um, the perspectives and, mm -hmm. and your like literal point of view, mm -hmm. like your actual visual point of view. Um, it's almost sometimes maze-like to me. Can you explain Very that? Very Tell me a little bit about that. 
I guess my like elevator pitch would be that my work investigates the internal and external spaces we inhabit as human beings. Internal being a mental state of mind and external being the physical body and its environment. And really how those dynamics parallel, they intertwine and they separate. The best example I have of that is when we wake up and fall asleep how we very consciously transition from a mental state to a physical state. You know, that blows my mind. I'm fascinated with things like that. And even the way we move around space, how it beca- how some things are just second nature, how we can walk through a door and we're unaware, we're so aware that we're unaware of how much our body knows where we are and how it functions. It's just second nature to just take a step, things yeah. like that. I mean, it's kind of weird because, like, everyone is an artist in their own right, right? Because we think, and if you think you're creating, whatever you're thinking about is a creation in itself. And s- some people's mediums are different. Like, I think the uh, the best artists were philosophers, and their medium was language, because they take the very essence of what it is to be a human and, and experience human things and exist as a human and put it into words, which I completely suck at. So, like... When it comes to doing artist statements, right, those are the hardest things for me. But I could uh, paint something that says everything I wanted to. I just can't put it in the language. But philosophers do that for me. Um, a lot of my uh, practice has been built off philosophy. Um, taking a bunch of classes with Susan Fox. She was awesome. Shout out to Susan. But yeah, like I've read a lot of Freud. I've read a lot of uh, Schopenhauer. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Not to get all philosophical. <laughs> But no, those guys really know how to, how to break down what it means to be alive. Yeah. So if you had to categorize yourself into strict boxes, could you do that? Or would you not want to do that for yourself? I would definitely not want to do that for myself. That's just hindering. And it's even like, even discussing mediums, like as an artist to now, I don't think you can have one medium. And it's like, you could practice one medium, and I'm sure that any there's oh, no matter how much you know, there's still more to learn in that specific medium. But we're just in a day and age where you have to know how to do everything, you know? Yeah. There's, there's so many resources, and you just have to be able to have your hand in all of them. Mm-hmm. So what inspired your most recent artwork? Uh, I guess a lot of what I've been doing is like iterations, right? So you'll see a lot of the same kind of stuff, like illusory checkerboards and the figure. It goes back to a metalsmithing class I was doing with uh, Davide. He's a, a, a metal artist, or I don't even know. He does everything, really. Mm-hmm. But And he taught me how to 3D scan. I was pretty much showing him um, Anthony Gormley's work, because I really uh, res- like resonate with Anthony Gormley's work. You should look him up. He's awesome. He's a UK-based artist. Um, and I, was showing, I, and I was showing him those, and then he introduced me to 3D scanning, and he brought his 3D scanner into me. And then it was pretty much just like, I wanted, I've, I want to do these life-size figures, right? I had did those previous ones in ceramics, and he was, and then I figured out a new way to do it by 3D scanning, where I'm literally, I'd literally take a 3D scan of me, put it into a bunch of different softwares, and then I can go to a machine and get it cut out for me. And that's what I'm doing now. Yeah. So... I don't know if that answers what inspires me to do it. I don't know, just to yeah. keep working. I think for me personally, I've noticed uh, over time that I'm definitely someone who works better or I guess kind of creates more appealing material when I'm like in my feelings, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm genuinely like sad or you know feeling really down. I feel like that's kind of what really gets the creative juices flowing for me. Is that like a similar case with you or do you have you know, a certain emotion that's better for you creatively? 
Well, for now, it's it's just become so second nature because I'm just in that like go out and get it because there's really no other option than than to work, right? Yeah. This is this is the career path I chose, so it's yeah. not like I get up and say, oh, do I feel like doing this today? Like, no, not at all. It's like I'm going to do this today. You get in the studio, like it's your job, and I say that's more of the case for now, but. And other, yeah, just pure ambition, just wanting to grow as an artist mm-hmm. and wanting to develop. Mm-hmm. That's that's really what inspires me, which is sometimes bad. Okay. I think so. It's, it's like the wrong reasons. Like some sometimes I have to remind myself, like, remember why you're really doing it. It's not about all that, you know, yeah. building a name and things like that. It's, it's about getting past, you know, whatever your desire is and just getting to a free state of mind. Yeah. So it seems like there's a lot of pressure on you, whether it be internally or externally, mm-hmm. on, on definitely you know creating that brand and mm-hmm. creating that avenue for you know making this uh, you know a capital venture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely, it's it's the real world, right? I feel like that's on everyone's mind, especially as a young twenty year old. Like, we're all trying to get it. Yeah, for sure. Or whatever way we can, the best way we can. Yeah. So, what's your connection to Prince William County? I grew up there. That's home. That's everything to me. Um, yeah, this is still my home, still where my studio is. That's my commute. I've lived there since I was since as long as I can remember. Tell me a little bit about the Gravestone Project. The Gravestone Project addresses the spike of homicides that occurred in 2016. So when I launched the project in July, there were already 11 homicides. Um, for each of the 11 homicides, I created a gravestone and put it within a mile radius of each homicide site. Um, while the gravestones referenced the actual incidents, um, they didn't reflect it completely. The names on the gravestones were left blank and the birth dates were left blank. And they were pretty much just suggest the possibility of fatalities if the pattern continued. Um, six months later, the number of homicides doubled to 22 so every gravestone that I had made it now counted for a real body mm-hmm. which still is hard to take in was that and just at Woodbridge that, that was all in all of Prince William okay. County a lot of them were in Manassas you know yeah. some in, in Lake Ridge um, some in Woodbridge some in Dumfries so what's been the reaction to it to the gravestone project it's been great it was well received by the community I mean I've gotten a lot of love for it actually and Especially from our peers, and that's one of the things that made me do it I, while it was happening. A lot of the questions I get are like, what made you do the Gravestone Project? For me, it was unavoidable. Like, these things were happening literally down the street. Yeah. Like, within two miles, there's, someone was shot and killed. And that's, that's not something I grew up, like, hearing about, you know? The, like, I would ride my bike more than two miles. Are you yeah. kidding me? So, there was a huge shift in... You keep seeing these things, these uh, things on Facebook, right? Like uh, rest in peace, so and so, rest in peace, so and so, and a lot of them were our age. So I felt the need to do something like, what's going on? What what are in these people's minds? Why are they in these predicaments? Because this isn't the way I was raised, and this isn't the community I I lived in. So I felt the need to do something. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that because when I went to say PWC a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago. You know, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, you know, I didn't know if it was kind of surrounded or just kind of revolving around the Gravestone Project or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but generally, like, I wasn't at all surprised by the event's success. Mm-hmm. Um, more so, I was really just inspired because, you know, 
people like you, like leaders, like in our community, you know what I mean? You guys were just so willing to take this issue head on. Well, for me, it was it was more important to come off as a peer than anything, because mm-hmm. it's the, I didn't want to take this mentor position, you know, saying that this is what this is good and this is bad. Yeah. You shouldn't do this. You sh- you should do that. Like kids are gonna do what they want, and it's easy for me to say like uh, do something better with your time. It's easy to identify a solution. That's what the Gravestone Project did. Identified an issue. Peace within the city created a solution. It gave the kids something to focus on, gave them something better to do with their time. As opposed to running out in the streets, it gave them something to look forward to and work towards. Mm-hmm. So being, you know, like kind of a solutions-oriented project, mm-hmm. what's the next step? I mean, there's a lot of talk about doing another one, but I'm so, like, exhausted from planning that one that I have to take a little bit of time to breathe. Yeah. And we've definitely, because there are definitely things we would like to grow about it, and Here's the thing, it was all about creating a situation that I wanted when I was in high school. Like, A lot of the reward for me was when the artists came up to me, the ones who I had been emailing um, and trying to gather up their work, a lot of them from Woodbridge High School. When they came up to me with their parents and just like, thank you for this, and they looked so happy, and seeing them take pictures in front of their work, that's that's like hit home for me, that's yeah. what it was all about. Yeah. Um, so I would definitely want to keep creating that situation for more kids to come because there's always going to be those artists in those situations. Mm-hmm. And they all need enc- encouragement, right? Because mm-hmm. like, I decided to be an artist when I was in high school and there was, there was really nothing like that going on. And there, like, at least at Potomac, the, the art department was it, was, it was decent, but we didn't like, you, there's nothing to work towards as an artist if you're just making work in the classroom. Give the kids a show and then it all becomes worthwhile. Even to this day when I have a show, like it's it's so worthwhile. Yeah. And it, and it gives me something to work towards and it makes my work ethic a lot harder because I need to prepare for something mm-hmm. as opposed to if I didn't have anything planned down the road. It's like, okay, so what's making you get up and create today? Right, right. What are some shows that you've been a part of A recently? part of recently? All right, well, I'm in Connecting the Dots now, which is at um, Torpedo Factory in Alexandria. That's been... I, I, it was split up into like two rounds, right? So there was a first round and a second round. I came in on the second round. We have a closing reception um, this Friday. And then I have another show coming up um, at DC Art Center. This is February 17th. And that's for this new collect, the Sparkplug Collective. So DC Art Center does, uh, has a Sparkplug program where artists apply. And then it's just uh, pretty much a, a collective. So you could stay having um, group critiques, right? You have people to bounce your ideas off mm-hmm. of instead of working in an isolated studio, which a lot of artists tend to do after school. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a situation where you can keep the conversation going around your work. And they give us two shows a year. It's a two-year program. They get, so our first show is in February, it's on February 17th in Adams Morgan. I'm getting ready for that now. Street 
and you see an artist on the side of the street selling his or her art, mm-hmm. what are your first thoughts? I respect the hustle. That's my first thought. Like, okay. I respect the hustle. Second thought would be, like, do it differently. How so? I don't know. There's just something about selling your art on the street that's not giving it the credit it deserves in some sense. I don't know. I might even take that back. That's not true. My first few years living in D.C., like my first year or second year, um, me and my friends would go walk outside with my paintings, right? Just like shameless promoting. Mm-hmm. And we, that's why I said my team is amazing because they yeah. just walk outside and hold <laughs> my paintings and we just go have fun or whatever, just go walk around the city and absorb the city. And like we would, and then one of my friends, well, he would always go, would, would hold it up and go up to people and ask what they thought about it. Mm. And their immediate response is like, no, I don't want to buy it. We, it was never for sale. Yeah. We were just doing it to promote, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's also that in the back of my mind in those situations too. Like, I don't want you to buy it. I wouldn't let you buy it. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel like a lot of the stuff that you create, there's no price tag on it? Yeah, I mean, I want to put a price tag on it, of course, but I don't do it for a price tag. And even like... I have these conversations with my cousin because my cousin is practically my studio assistant and he's always there helping me like he helped me uh, distribute the gravestones he helps me when I need to go to the shop when I need to pick up wood anything he's just always there he's like the manpower behind it and I'll have these conversations with it because he sees the work that goes into it and how the, the money that goes into the materials and whatnot and I'll ask him, like, how much should I price this for? And I'll, I'll put a price on it, and he'll be like, no, it needs to be for more than that. Yeah. Because it, it takes a lot more time, but if you're not getting it, then you're not getting it, you know? Right. It's just all about building. You have to start somewhere. So yeah. I'm very much so an emerging artist. I still have plenty to learn, so mm-hmm. I act accordingly. Yeah. <laughs> I like the humility. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think that, so, I mean, do you think that your cousin, you know, he highballs, in your mind, he kind of like highballs a price because um, he's seeing the cost of the materials and like the cost of the labor, or is it because he like, you think that, you know, there's real value there, or he actually sees the value in your work? Well, when I tell him to do it, I tell him to be realistic about it and not be like, not hold it to some standard like, this is amazing, this is masterpiece, it should be worth this much. I tell him like, he's really realistic about it like how, how much did you spend on it yeah. how many hours did you spend okay now bump the price up this much that yeah. sounds about right so I'd like to think that he's being realistic but he's also one of my biggest fans I imagine yeah. so and I've also made a huge leap in like recording that kind of stuff also because it just makes no sense to let some of the stuff go it it makes more sense to just hold on to it and mm-hmm. store it away than sell it for a ridiculously cheap price mm-hmm. that makes sense and also making smaller works that's easier to sell you know it takes less time when i'm making like if i'm working on a five foot by five foot canvas and spending upwards of 15 hours on it it's going to be hard to find uh, someone to buy it and that also gets into this whole market of artists, right? So if you're represented by a gallery, they usually take 50% of it. So what... Wait, how wait, 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 wait. 50%? Yeah, 50%. I think that's the standard. Not that I've even represented by a yeah. gallery, so... But that's pretty much the standard, to take 50% of the work if it sells. Hmm. And it's like, is that fair? I feel like the artist a lot of the time gets the short end of the stick. It's like... They, they rely on these galleries to sell their work. The gallery just puts it somewhere and makes it and gives it like Space. credibility, yeah. right? And then they sell it to a collector, take half of it, and then you get half. 
So what would you say is your most valuable art creation ever? It hasn't been made yet. I like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'd like to think that like all of my new projects, I feel like they get better than the last. But then I always like I'll look back to the things I made even a year ago and be like, I'm so over that. Like that's yeah. even now I have a hard time showing stuff that I did a year ago. I don't want to show that. I want to show new work. Yeah. And that's also what keeps you driven to keep making too. So there's a little bit of a, a Tom Brady in there. Like, what's mm-hmm. your favorite Super Bowl? The next one. Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Especially because there's like, it's only the beginning. I'm so small now, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know. I just want to grow. I look forward to growing. I look forward to putting in the work. Like, I look forward to the work that has yet to be done more than what I've already yeah. done. And that also took a lot of time to get to. For me also, because it's like as far as production-wise goes, the last year that I've been working, I've been busting my ass more than I ever have been, and it shows. Even the years before that, I have like a few works to show for it, so there's a huge, there's a huge difference in that, too. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of already fallen in love with the process. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Nice. It becomes an addiction. Like, sometimes I don't know when to flip the switch. Like, if I spend a day in the studio and I'm just thinking about all these things, right? I'm thinking about how it's going to be put together. I'm thinking about my schedule, how I'm going to schedule out this week, how I'm going to be able to work and get this done and get this done and meet deadlines. And I'll lay down and I just can't stop. Like, the flip does not switch, or the switch does not flip, right? And I'm just keep going, keep going, and I'll be trying to sleep for two hours just thinking. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is an addiction. It's a positive addiction. So going back to that kind of like philosophical idea of like how you created your recent work. Yeah, illusory. Um, yeah. You were kind of talking about um, like mental headspace and things mm-hmm. like that in comparison to like physical space and stuff. Um, do you see that inspiring your next work? Is that something you oh, want to always. keep working That's on? something yeah. I'm, I'm still dealing with. I'd, even that whole statement is, is something that's taken, like I've had to grow into because this is where, this is what I've been thinking for a while, but now I just developed the language for it. Mm-hmm. And now that I've developed the language for it, it's helped me develop the, the visuals for mm-hmm. it. And there's still plenty to grow. Like um, a huge part of the, the, the leaps I've taken and transitions I've taken from like religious iconography to this more like uh, obscure, illusory, figural stuff is because of Joseph Campbell. Are you familiar with Joseph Campbell? No. There's a wonderful <laughs> book you should read called The Power of, the Power of Myth. And he pretty much just dissects religion into a, a language that anyone could understand. It's like taking the word God and substituting it for the universe, and all of a sudden everything makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that played a huge role for me. Give me your elevator pitch one more time. Elevator pitch. My work investigates the internal and external spaces we inhabit as human beings. Internal meaning, meaning the mind, external meaning the body and the environment that it's in. I'm interested in the way those dynamics parallel, intertwine, and dissect from one another. My best example would be when you wake up and fall asleep, how you transition between a mental state and a physical state. And I feel like that that happens um, subtly throughout our day so many times, like even um, if we're on our phone, right? We're so engaged with our phone, and you could be walking, and you're so engaged with your phone, you don't even realize where you're going. Yeah. You're not thinking twice about it. Mm-hmm. When you're watching a movie, you're so engaged in a movie, you lose your presence of where you're at. Mm-hmm. Although, and that's that's kind of the kind of experience that I try to induce when I'm creating my work, like the whole room of consciousness. 
I want you to walk in those rooms and either become super aware of your body or lose your body. Do both. Yeah. That transition. Experience that transition. Okay, so the first time that I saw um, your your piece where you've got the perspective going into the single point, right? Mm-hmm. And you've got the man up above. Honestly, like the very first thought I had was, let me put myself in that person's body. Yeah. So I was like... Excellent. That's yeah. exactly what I want. Dope. So I was, yeah, so I was literally sitting there like I'm... I don't know if I saw it on like Instagram or what, but like I was kind of just looking at it and I, I just closed my eyes and I thought about like being that person above that giant space, the like perspective, kind of the perspective from the outside, but also just like the perspectiveless space, mm-hmm. kind of just like within my own mind. That's awesome. And that's also, and I try to stem that conversation through two-dimensionality and three-dimensionality mm-hmm. also, right? So I like juxtaposing a sculpture and a painting. And a painting will make you engage it in more of a mental state, while the sculpture, you're so aware of your proximity to the sculpture and its mm-hmm. physical being, and it has a mass like you do. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's all about. And in, in the paintings, it's two-dimensional, but it's illusory. It makes you think it's infinite. And those are the kind of states that, like, I don't know, I guess stimulate your mind more. Yeah. Right? I mean, it definitely did for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you talked about um, success just very briefly. You kind of mentioned it, um, you know, when you were talking about Kid Cudi. You said that, you know, recognition from him was kind of a version of success for you. Yeah. So in, I guess, broad terms, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 50 Mm -hmm. years down the line, what does success look like for you? Well, there's like numerous answers to that. And it's kind of like the more you get, like it's just, it's never ending, right? So at one point, uh, having him recognize my work was success enough. And now it's like, all right, now I have to work with him. Like that's, I don't reach this success until then. And then there's the more like a standard idea of, of success, um, which would just be to be able to create and make a living off my work and just do that. Wake up in the studio, be able to live to live a comfortable life just by making work. Yeah, and that's that's enough. And then there's the idea of like being huge and being able to do whatever <laughs> I want and making huge. Like I'm telling you, look in the Anthony Gormley. The projects he's doing are ridiculous, mm-hmm. like next level, like huge, huge beings that are as tall as buildings attached to hotel rooms. Like it, and you can. It's a little. It's literally attached to a hotel, and you can walk inside it. And if you look from the outside, you're walking inside of a being. Mm-hmm. It's, it's stuff that's like sick. that is yeah. yeah it's sick, and it, it takes unlimited resources. And that's when you have those kind of resources, that means you're successful. Yeah. So <laughs> there's all these kind of things, but for now, I'm just gonna say working with Kid Cudi would be success, <laughs> and work. being able to just live off of my work. Big thanks to Alexis Gomez for spending some time to catch up with us, explain some of his genius, and tell us what it's like to be an up-and-coming artist right now. You can find his work at alexisgomezart.com, and you definitely want to follow him on Instagram and Twitter at alexisgomezart. We'll put up all the links on coolforthought.com, too. 
Speaking of links, if you guys like the music on this episode, you can find more of it by following Delon Marquise at D-E-L-A-N-M-A-R-Q on Instagram and Delon Marquise on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, and all that. It's kind of crazy to say this, but this is our one-year episode, and thanks to the laws of supply and demand, the Cool for Thought team is growing. We're ready to hit the ground running in year two, so stay tuned, and of course, stay hungry. <laughs>